Our earlier scripture reading was short, but this one will be lengthy, as we're going to read all of chapter 48 of Genesis as we continue our study of the last chapters here of Genesis. So we'll read now Genesis chapter 48, which the Lord inspired Moses to write, and so we know it is an account given or recorded without error. So let's attend to the very word of God. Genesis chapter 48. Now it came to pass, after these things, that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, Look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make of you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Your offspring, whom you beget after them, shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. But as for me, when I came from Paddan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me in this place. And he said, Please bring them to me, and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact God has also shown me your offspring. So Joseph brought them from beside his knees, and he bowed down with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, to the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be named among them, excuse me, let my name be named upon them, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, so he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, 
and he also shall be great, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time, and may he bless its reading, its exposition, and its hearing. Last Sabbath we read of Joseph's swearing to Jacob that he would bury him in the land of Canaan. In today's reading we find that uh, Jacob is now on his deathbed, uh, suffering from his final illness, and so Joseph comes to him with his two sons, Manasseh the firstborn and Ephraim the secondborn. In Genesis 48 we find some theological points. Uh, One thing we see is the doctrine of adoption is hinted at, or it's prefigured. The second thing is that the angel of the Lord is the Lord. As we see in Scripture, he is the pre-incarnate Christ. And related to that, then, we see the doctrine of redemption in him. God's people are purchased by Christ. That's what redemption means. Out from under the Lord's just wrath and our sin. Redemption means you're being purchased out from under a debt. And in addition, we learn several applications from the examples set here by Jacob and Joseph in this chapter. Uh, One is that we are to be in the world, but not of it. Uh, Second is that we should acknowledge how God has blessed us. Acknowledge how God has blessed you. Even bitter experiences begin to be seen in light, not of the suffering that we endure in the midst of the bitter experiences, but in light of what God is doing. Number three, heed God's word. And number four, think covenantally. Therefore, seek to be a blessing to future generations. So this is a lesson we saw last time. It's a lesson we see this time as well. These lessons should become apparent as we reflect on what we find here in Genesis 48. First, let me point out the overarching theme in this passage is a theme of faith. Because of his faith... In the Lord, Joseph brings his sons to be blessed by his father. Because of his faith, Jacob adopts Joseph's sons as his own and blesses them. Uh, Hebrews 11.21, we read earlier, explicitly tells us, By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. Uh, That's an alternate uh, reading of what it says where he leans at the end of this passage we just had, read it's uh, translated here as leaned on the head of his bed could also mean that he leaned uh, with a different little iteration of it there could be that he leaned on the top of his staff as we'll see the point is that he worshipped out of faith Jacob acknowledges how God has blessed him and he now looks back Uh, more on what God was doing than on the personal difficulties that he experienced. By faith, Jacob speaks prophetically 
of what will come for the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. And by faith, he gives a parcel of land in Canaan to Joseph, expecting that Joseph's descendants will be able to claim it. He's not in the land now to lay claim to it, but by God's grace, Israel will come and claim that land in future generations. Moses writes, Now it came to pass, after these things, that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Joseph learns that Jacob is ill. He knew the end of Jacob's life was approaching. And this seems to be his final illness. In fact, it will be. Uh, Joseph may not have known that unless the Lord gave him a word to know. But uh, Jacob is on his deathbed, seems likely. And so it's reasonable that Joseph would come. He comes to his father bringing with him his sons Manasseh and Ephraim. It might be that this was a, by prior arrangement. Maybe Jacob had said, when my time to die comes, bring with you your two sons. Uh, we don't know, but clearly Joseph has some sense that his sons are going to receive a blessing from their grandfather. And by the way, we, we can note that contrary to a lot of artwork and at least one film, one movie that I've seen depicting this, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim were not little boys uh, when, uh, when Joseph brought them to his father. They were born, as Jacob says in this passage, before Jacob had come to Egypt. And that was 17 years earlier. Jacob's been in Egypt for 17 years. The sons of Joseph are young men at this point. And so uh, the notion that they were at his knees, which Moses communicates here, probably has more to do with the notion, with the sense that perhaps uh, Joseph remained standing and they knelt before their grandfather or he was sitting in a chair and they were sitting on the floor or something of that sort. Uh, or it could just be figuratively to talk about your sons being at your knees. But we ought not to picture little boys here. They're over 17 years old, the younger of the two. So these are young men. But the fact that Joseph brings his sons at this time reminds us of a lesson that we touched upon around the time we had communion recently. Be in the world, but not of it. Why does it remind us of that? I think Alfred Edersheim, in his book on Old Testament history, puts it well. Saying, in this, Joseph signally showed his faith. Instead of seeking for his sons, the honors which the court of Egypt offered them, he distinctly renounced all to share the lot of the despised shepherd race. Joseph could have used his position. Remember, he's second only to Pharaoh in the land of Egypt, and he has just actually strengthened Pharaoh's political position in Egypt. If anything, Joseph is arguably the second most powerful man in the world in his day with only the Pharaoh with a little bit more authority. Joseph could have used that position of power in Egypt to secure titles for his sons, positions of authority for them and for their descendants perpetually in Egypt. They could have effectively become Egyptians. And as we know about Egyptian history in later times, there were times of 
of uh, dynastic uh, downfalls that a family, a dynasty would fall or uh, would die out and there would be a little bit of a scramble for power and oftentimes people in the kinds of position that Joseph is in here would end up being the next pharaoh. Joseph could could, could have secured a position of perpetual power for his descendants that would have ended up with some of his descendants ruling Egypt, not second to Pharaoh, but as the Pharaoh themselves. But no, he doesn't do that. Instead, he's interested in his sons having a share, a stake, in the blessing that God has promised to Israel. Blessings that have not come to full fruition as yet. Blessings that are reserved for later generations. He believed God's promises and he acted accordingly. As we saw recently in John 17, Jesus expects that his disciples will be in the world. John 17, 11, he prays, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And then John 17, 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. And then John 17, 16, he declares of his disciples, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Joseph is showing here that he understands his blessings, and the blessings for his future generations of his descendants, of his posterity, are not of this world. They're from the God of heaven. Yes, there will be earthly elements to those blessings, the possession of the land, but he's recognizing that he belongs to the Lord, his descendants are to be God's covenant people, and so he's not seeking simple earthly blessings for them, but that covenant relationship with the Lord, that they will be among the Israelites who are in the promised land. Jacob then acknowledges how God has blessed him, saying in verses 3 and 4, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz. That's the place that he renamed Bethel, Bethel, the house of God, after this experience. He says, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make of you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. In verse 11, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact God has also shown me your offspring. We've seen that God has already multiplied Jacob's descendants. And a reader in Moses' day, when this scripture was inspired, would have been able to see that the Lord was faithful to actually make them into a great nation like he had promised. The Lord also had reunited Jacob with Joseph, something he wouldn't have dared to dream. So Jacob acknowledges God's blessings here. Similarly, Joseph acknowledges God's blessings when Jacob asks, Who are these? He answers in verse 9, They are my sons whom God has given me in this place. We learn a lesson here. Acknowledge how God has blessed you. This is a sign of faith, recognizing how God has blessed you. Jacob, 17 years earlier, had spoken of the evil of the days of his life. Few and evil have been my days. But now he sees how God was working in these circumstances, those evil circumstances, to bring these and future blessings about. 
And so now he's concentrating on the good that God has done. As Paul reminds us in Romans 8.28, that all things work together for the good of God's people. After acknowledging what God has promised, Jacob then accepts Joseph's two sons as his own. As we noted before, as Hebrews 11.21 states, Jacob did this by faith, expecting God to continue fulfilling his promises. He's seen that God fulfills his promises thus far, and so he believes that God will fulfill his promises in the future. That's the same kind of faith that Abraham displayed. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Jacob says in verse 5, And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine, as Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Notice he names the second-born Ephraim first. We'll see why here in a little bit. But here, uh, Jacob counts these two sons of Joseph among his own sons. They're going to receive a portion equal with their uncles. Jacob says, Your offspring whom you beget after them shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. Now, uh, the first part of that is more accurately translated actually in the past tense, your offspring whom you begat, past tense. It suggests that Joseph already had other children. Now, whether Joseph had any other sons is unclear, but if he did have other sons, Jacob's declaration meant that they, would, they and their descendants were going to be counted either as part of a tribe of Ephraim or a part of the tribe of Manasseh. Once in a while in the, New, the Old and New Testament, but particularly in the Old Testament, you will uh, find references to the tribe of Joseph. But Joseph is actually a sort of double tribe because most often you'll see Ephraim and Manasseh listed as separate tribes among the tribes of Israel. Indeed, Manasseh will be so plentiful Ephraim will outnumber them, but Manasseh actually will have two allotments given to them, one in the land of Canaan proper, and then half of the tribe will stay on the eastern side of the Jordan. Any other descendants of Joseph, if he had other children, their descendants were going to either be counted as part of the tribe of Ephraim or the part of Manasseh. Now, why would Jacob adopt two of Joseph's sons as his own? Why would he say that they have a place among their uncles, just as and he names his two firstborn? The reason is at least twofold. For one thing, in Joseph's absence, and now with Joseph occupied with governing Egypt, Jacob has indeed entrusted leadership of the family to Judah. Uh, Judah's descendants will be the leading tribe in Israel, and it will be from Judah that King David and Jesus Christ will be descended. But Jacob still intends to give the double portion of the firstborn to his son Joseph. He always intended to do that, to bestow this double portion of the firstborn on Joseph, and now he does so. But rather than simply giving Joseph a double portion of his livestock and other property, property that Joseph really doesn't have much need of at this point, in fact, Joseph, we've been told, has been providing for his father, not the other way around, 
But what does Jacob do here? By faith, trusting that God will make his descendants into a great nation as he promised, and they'll settle them in the land of Canaan, Jacob makes Joseph's descendants into two tribes. And thus Joseph receives this double portion in Israel. He's not just one tribe, he's two. For another thing, Joseph's mother, Jacob's beloved Rachel, had died relatively young in the early years after Jacob had returned to Canaan from Paddan Aram. And so he says, but as for me, when I came from Paddan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. That's a comment, that is Bethlehem, some think might be something later added by a scribe or added by Moses perhaps, um, so that later people would know that Ephrath is what is more better known as Bethlehem. We don't know, maybe he said it that way. These grandsons are adopted as Jacob's own sons in lieu of other sons that Rachel might have borne to Jacob. This reminds us of a very important doctrine that we see fleshed out through Scripture and especially explicitly in the New Testament, what we call the doctrine of adoption. As Jacob adopted the sons of Joseph, the sons that Joseph brought to him, so God adopts those whom Christ brings to him. Romans 8.15 For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. God becomes a father to all who are in Christ. So just as, as Joseph here brings his sons to his father, to be adopted by him. This prefigures Christ bringing all who are in him to be adopted by the Father, that we might call God Father just as Christ calls God Father. Next, Jacob asks Joseph to present his sons to him. And Moses tells us in verse 10, Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. Now that's an expression that means it was he had a hard time seeing. That doesn't mean that he couldn't see at all. Because just a few verses back, he said that Moses tells us that he saw the sons of Joseph. But he tells us here, Then Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. So this seems to be a... a some even thought maybe a hereditary problem. You'll notice that, that when Isaac got old, he could not see either. His vision was dim. And now when Jacob is old, his vision is dim. Starting in verse 12, Moses writes, So Joseph brought them from beside his knees, and he bowed down with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near to him. So Joseph here is aiming his firstborn, Manasseh, at Jacob's right hand, which he would think would be ordinarily appropriate. You'll want to put the right hand on the elder son, because that's who receives the greater blessing. So even back in ancient times, the right hand was considered to be a more blessed hand than the left. That's probably just because the majority of people are right-handed, right? (laughs) 
But Jacob crosses his arms. You kind of get a picture, a little bit of awkwardness here. As he, he recognizes which one's which, and he's going to bless the younger. He's intending to do this. We're told he does this knowingly. He crosses his arms so that he could lay his right hand on Ephraim, the younger son. Joseph objects, thinking that his father, with his poor vision, is uh, not realizing which son is which. He's gotten the two mixed up. But Moses explicitly tells us Jacob did this knowingly. He explains down in verse 19, I know, my son, I know, he, Manasseh, shall also become a people. He also shall be great, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. Literally, he says Ephraim's descendants shall be the fullness of the nations. That's an expression that means they'll be like the size of a nation on their own. There'll be a big tribe. Jacob is pronouncing these things as a prophet of the Lord. He knows that Ephraim will be the greater tribe of the two. He's received God's word and he bestows his blessings on his grandsons according to what God has told him. So from this we are reminded that we should heed God's word. Also we learn from Jacob to think covenantally. God has plans for his covenant people in every generation. And knowing that, and heeding God's word, Jacob pronounces blessings on Joseph's sons. Ephraim the greater blessing because he's heeding God's word. But blessings come upon both sons. Verses 15 and 16, and he blessed Joseph saying, and notice that, that it's the blessing for Joseph with these two tribes coming from him, saying, God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long this, to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them. Basically he's saying, let them be considered my sons. In the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, let them receive the same covenant that I received. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Notice a couple of important theological points. First, the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, is the Lord. He is Yahweh. And why do I say that? Well, the blessing is, as most prophetic pronouncements in Scripture are, it's in poetry. Hebrew poetry is characterized by presenting parallel ideas. Jacob acknowledges the identity of God by three parallel expressions here. God, literally the God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, and the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. So the God mentioned twice is the same as the angel who redeemed Jacob. The verb bless is conjugated there to the singular. He's not saying let these two or three beings each bless These boys, he's saying, let this one being, who is the God of my fathers, who is the God who fed me, and who is the angel who redeemed me, let him bless these lads. One God, who is the God of Abraham and Isaac, who is the God who fed Jacob, is the angel who redeemed him. So, this angel of the Lord, this angel of Yahweh, is Yahweh. As we've noted before, the angel of the Lord is the second person of the Trinity as we have this more fleshed out in Scripture later on. 
He is the Son, the Word of God, the pre-incarnate Christ Jesus. For as, as John tells us, no one has seen God that is in his, in his, his invisible deity, in his invisible being, but the only Son has made him known. And so when we see God, not just in a vision, but when he literally is appearing to people on earth and interacting with them, that's the second person of the Trinity, that's the Son. And so this is Jesus before he was born as Jesus. And he in particular, Jacob says, is Jacob's Redeemer. And so we also see the doctrine of redemption here as well. Redemption in Christ Jesus. Christ is the Redeemer of God's people. The angel of the Lord who redeemed Jacob. He purchases them out from under God's just wrath at their sins. Notice also that as Jacob pronounces this blessing, he is seeking a blessing for future generations, saying, Bless the lads, let my name be upon them, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. A reference to his fathers, again, makes this covenantal language. The God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob is called upon to bless these young men and their descendants just as he's blessed Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, given them his covenant. And so Jacob is thinking covenantally of the the good of future generations. May they remain in that covenant. May they be God's visible church, to use New Testament language. May they be his visible church on earth. And he also, in the midst of pronouncing these blessings, pronounces that Ephraim will become a greater tribe than Manasseh. And that's a prophetic pronouncement. Though in Moses' time, Ephraim was actually smaller than Manasseh. As we look at the, the, the counts of the tribes in the book of Numbers, for example, it would soon become the largest tribe next to Judah. When the northern kingdom breaks off from Judah... Ephraim will be the largest tribe in the kingdom of Israel. Manasseh will be the second largest. Ephraim will be the most powerful tribe. It will be the tribe in whose territory the capital of Samaria will be built. And so as Jacob says, men will bless others wishing prosperity on them, well-being on others, saying, may God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Be fruitful like that. So they'll be so fruitful that others will see that they would desire to be like them. might also note that Ephraim will be so powerful in that northern kingdom when the two kingdoms split from one another that oftentimes in Scripture Ephraim will simply be used as a poetic shorthand for the whole northern kingdom. But both of them will be blessed tribes. Moreover, Jacob pronounces a benediction in verse 21, still thinking covenantally, thinking generationally, thinking of the good of future generations. Behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. In the final verse, he bestows a special blessing on Joseph of a parcel of land which will be in the territory of Ephraim when the land is allotted in the time of Joshua, he says, it's land which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Uh, Jacob is deeding to Joseph a plot of land already recognized as his own. 
which he took militarily, as it were. We know where this is, actually. John 4, verse 5 tells us it was at the place called Sychar in Jesus' day near Shechem. Jacob is probably referring here to the fact that his sons had taken Shechem by force and, and its territory by violence. It's recorded in Genesis 34, and he's saying, well, we laid claim to this, and so I have bestowed this land upon your descendants, Joseph. So we learn from Jacob to think of future generations, to think covenantally, to be a blessing to future generations of God's people. So just to reiterate our theological points in this chapter, number one, the doctrine of adoption. God adopts as his own those whom Christ brings to him. Just as Joseph brought his sons to Jacob, when Jesus brings his people to God, they become God's sons. Number two, the angel of the Lord is the Lord. The angel of the Lord we encounter in the Old Testament, not just an angel, there are other created beings who are angels, but but when God comes as his own messenger, that is the Lord God himself being called the angel of the Lord. He is the pre-incarnate Christ, and so our third point here, third theological point, is Christ is the redeemer of God's people, is the angel of the Lord that Jacob recognizes as his redeemer. We also find several applications underneath this overarching theme of faith, along with these theological points. Trust God, and because you do trust the living God, be in the world, but not of it. Just as Joseph noted that his blessings were not primarily of this world, but from the God of heaven, be in the world, but not of it. Look to the God of heaven for your blessings. Number two, acknowledge how God has blessed you. We all have afflictions and trials and difficulties, but God has also blessed us all greatly. Number three, heed God's word. Just as Jacob made these pronouncements by the word of God that he received, let us Heed God's word. Now, I'm not saying that we receive God's word in the same way Jacob did. We have the written canon of Scripture, so that is what we are to heed. Heed God's word. And number four, think covenantally. Think of how you might be a blessing to future generations of God's people. Let's pray. Lord our God, who has given us the spirit of adoption and come to us in the person of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of your people, Build us up in truth, that trusting in you we may be in the world but not of it, that we might acknowledge your many blessings and heed your word and be a blessing to future generations of your people until Christ returns. For we pray in his blessed name. Amen.